It's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, and welcome to Monster Mondays. I am Jeff Harbuckle, and I'm the co-host of the weekly podcast, Film Seizure, that you can catch every Wednesday at FilmSeizure.com or at a number of podcast providers online. When approaching this week's featured movie, I had to think long and hard about how far into the actual discussion of the film itself I would go. This week's movie is the horror thriller mystery, The Last Broadcast from 1998, directed by Stefan Avalos and Lance Weiler. In fact, that duo didn't just direct the movie. They wrote it, they produced it, and they starred in it. Uh, Avalos even did music for it as well because he is a uh, uh, he's a string instrument player. Actually, he's uh, he's played in Philharmonics and stuff like that. So uh, it, they did a lot to really kind of bring this little found footage movie together. And like I said, this is one of those found footage movies of sorts. I would say that this is more of a fake documentary than an actual found footage movie. A few years ago, I covered the Blair Witch Project for this show. That was a movie that truly went with that found footage description. These filmmakers went looking for a local legend in the woods, disappeared, and what they filmed is being presented to the audience now. Absolutely the same kind of idea influenced the hugely successful paranormal activity movies. But... The last broadcast is less about found footage, but using the footage to help tell the story of a uh, kind of like a documentary um, where one of the characters in the film is uh, kind of making this account of a crime that happened. This is more along the lines of what Cannibal Holocaust really is more than anything else. So there is this narrative wrapped around the footage. Whereas movies like the McPherson tapes and the Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity are only really kind of giving us the shot footage by those who were missing, dead, whatever. In one regard, this movie is more traditional than the normal found footage movies and really kind of crosses the line into more of the straight horror film uh, with that mockumentary feel. You can almost say that this is more Spinal Tap and less Blair Witch. But the last broadcast and the Blair Witch Project are absolutely linked together uh, through fate more than anything. The last broadcast was released in October of 1998, whereas the Blair Witch Project made its premiere at Sundance in January of 1999 and then got a wide release across the U.S. and Canada and later Europe um, about six months later. Because the last broadcast came first, it was often uh, misattributed as being influential to the Blair Witch Project. However, Blair Witch had been in development since the early 90s and began production in 1997. That said, the last broadcast did influence an entire new age of indie filmmakers and productions going into the early 21st century. This is believed to be the first ever film entirely shot and edited on consumer grade digital equipment. This is equipment so readily and easily purchased at almost any store. You can roll up to a Target, Walmart, or Best Buy, or hell, just log on to Amazon and get a camera that can shoot your movie for maybe as little as 300 bucks or less. You can get editing software for less than 50 bucks a year, and you can get sound editing software for practically nothing actually literally nothing 
Trust me, I produce movie hosting show where I have to film segments of myself and spent very little for the actual hardware to do that filming and editing. Go to any horror convention like Horror Hound or Days of the Dead and you will find table after table after table of local and regional filmmakers hawking their films on DVD and Blu-ray shot entirely on digital cameras and edited possibly even on the spot as they're filming on a regular personal use laptop. Then those films get entered into worldwide film festivals and then often sold all over the world. It may not be as lucrative as it might sound, but it allows people to make something that ultimately grows into a small cult following. And it makes something that maybe only 25 years ago seem so impossible to do. And that it makes it not only possible, but probable for people to do. Of course, there's a for better or worse angle to that, but that's not the point. These types of groundbreaking movies that prove something could be made on consumer-grade equipment, these things are important because sometimes great movies are made and even better directors are found. Now let's talk about the monster that these people in this movie are actually trying to find, the Jersey Devil. What's interesting is that this is a movie that centers on the idea that these people go into the uh, Pine Barrens of New Jersey to find the Jersey Devil, but it's not at all about a monster. Uh, it is a horror movie, but it is not about the Jersey Devil jumping out and, and scaring everybody. But we'll come back around to that. The Legend of the Jersey Devil goes back to an old folk tale about Jane Leeds, also known as Mother Leeds. She had 12 children. Upon learning that she was pregnant for the 13th time, she cursed the child in her womb and swore it would become the devil. In 1735, she gave birth to a child that supposedly transformed into a monster with hooves, a goat's head, bat wings, and a forked tail. It flew out of the chimney and went into the Pine Barrens. Some legends say that local priests later attempted to exorcise the monster uh, out of the Pine Barrens, and by the late 1700s and into the early 1800s, the quote-unquote Leeds Devil became a local legend of a monster in southern New Jersey. By January of 1909, a whole bunch of sightings were reported all over the state. The Jersey Devil is one of the heavy hitters in North American cryptozoology. In fact, if you ever want to know why the New Jersey Devils, this hockey team has that name, that's why. Uh, but the Pine Barrens is a massive portion of southern New Jersey that, in, that comprises of 1.1 million acres, which is 22% of that state's landmass. It's loaded with almost endless pine trees. It also has a whole bunch of different plants, including orchids and carnivorous plants. Uh, there are more than 20 types of berries that grow there. Uh, there are also some 40 specimens of mammals in the Pine Barrens, as well as a bunch of reptiles, amphibians, and fish. It became protected land under the National Parks and Recreation Act of 1978 and has been left pretty much undisturbed ever since, even by the, by the urban sprawl of the area caused by Philadelphia and the neighboring suburbs on the Jersey side of the Delaware River. Okay, so let's get back around to the last broadcast itself. Now, the movie begins with David Lee, a filmmaker wanting to show evidence in what's being called the Jersey, Jersey Devil Murders. 
Jim Seward was accused and arrested for the murder of two hosts of a show called Fact or Fiction. And those guys were Stephen and Locus. Um, in the winter of 1995, Seward called 911 to report that he couldn't find the people he had been with. The next day, bodies were found, and soon Seward was arrested and charged with murder of Stephen and Locus, as well as a third member of this trip. Then, Seward was found guilty fairly quickly, and by the time that uh, Lee released his documentary, we learned that Seward died under mysterious circumstances in prison. The movie shows footage of this final broadcast. It isn't just for the Fact or Fiction TV show, that's on public access cable, but it was also simulcast on the internet. Well, then David Lee starts looking at the people involved. First, uh, and maybe most importantly, is Jim Seward himself. He was a loner, came from a family that was broken by his father running away with another woman, and then both his mom and his dad died while he was still fairly young. He had interests in the internet and stage magic, of all things. And this was what brought Jim and Stephen uh, brought Jim rather to Stephen and Locus and their show Factor Fiction. We then learn about the series Factor Fiction and the series creators. Stephen was a bit of an egomaniac while Locus was a sardonic slacker. But they somehow made this show work. They developed the idea of instead of doing a call-in segment for the show, they tried to do a segment that would feature chat rooms. They even rigged up a uh, text to uh, a speech chat system uh, but the voice created by the program was mechanical and creepy it was uh, through this that a viewer made the suggestion that they go to the pine barrens and look for the jersey devil the show factor fiction was popular to most of the gen x crowd in the area because it was weird sort of funny and mostly zany for late night viewers the kitsch value of the show kept the earliest episodes afloat, but after about six months, it was starting to fall apart. It was kind of a one-trick pony of sorts. Uh, Steven was uh, mostly the one who was desperate to keep the show going and to regain his popularity. They hired a, a director, or they at least talked to a director for the live broadcast, and then they went out to find a sound guy who, could, uh, who claimed he could capture paranormal stuff. And they also found a psychic, or at least someone who claimed that he was a psychic and capable of being the crew's guide to send them to the best place to do this show. That turned out to be Jim Seward. They filmed Jim being able to psychically predict cards in a deck and even having fits that they needed to restrain him over. Now, whether or not he was truly psychic or just using his talents in magic and some of the acting courses he took, was you know obviously kind of questionable there one day jim had a fit and when he recovered there was a peculiar set of numbers uh, on his arm that resembled the date december 13th 1995. the first body uh, that was found was locus the, um, then their sound man uh, ryan Stephen's body was never found, but based on the amount of blood that was found next to his hat, there was no chance that Stephen could have survived. After looking at all the evidence the trouble, uh, and the trouble that the sound guy Ryan had with Jim, the only possible subject was Jim. 
they found the clothing that Jim wore during the trip also had blood of all three victims on it. So it was pretty much uh, kind of ramrodded through by the prosecutor that Jim was going to be found guilty. But when this trial started against Jim, it quickly became a media circus. Tabloid coverage wondered if Jim Seward was even possessed by the Jersey Devil itself. It happened to be an election year for the district attorney, and so they even set up an editor to help take what footage that Stephen and Locust had shot to create not just sympathy for those who were murdered, but also build a case that was easy to show that Jim was a calculating killer. The first third of this movie basically explains the basics of the people involved in the case built against Jim. The second third is a full synopsis of the trip into the Pine Barrens with the footage shot by Stephen and Locus, uh, which shows that as the day continued on, Jim started acting differently and more agitated and more of an outcast. Uh, it also covers the evidence uh, and the ultimate aftermath of the trial against Jim. However, it also shows that there's a great deal of doubt when looking at all of the evidence at a, mic at a macro level. If you really get into the micro stuff the juries understand, it was pretty easy to put away Jim. However, if you took a step back and actually looked at all of the evidence in one fell, in one fell swoop, things didn't really look like it was Jim that actually committed the crime. It also revealed that there was more footage not seen before that makes up the final third of this movie. The day after Jim was found dead in his cell of undetermined causes, David Lee was sent a package of unspooled videotape in a box. Lee asked a data retrieval expert to try to find out exactly what was on the tape that he received. And uh, the last word on the last seen tape uh, at the trial that was used was about changing out the tapes on the last running cameras and nobody had ever found that additional tape well that's what was sent to lee what's on it shows the uh, footage of the final moments of each of the victims included in the mangled tape being uh, retrieved are the actual absolute final seconds of Locus and Ryan's life. They go looking for Stephen, who has gone missing outside of the uh, blood and the snow. They don't know, you know where he could have gone. That's all they find of him uh, and his hat. But then we see uh, seemingly that Locus is reacting to someone coming up behind him, and then Ryan is running away after dropping his camera. In that footage also is part of a video that contains the identity of the true killer. And it's up to the retrieval expert to fix the tape and find out who that person was. But even before that, Lee begins to question who or what could have killed these three men. Could it actually be the Jersey Devil? Well, no, not really. Like I said, there's no Jersey Devil in this movie. There's no monster in this movie. No one believed that the Jersey Devil was actually there. But Lee questions some of the truth of what was presented. He believes that the killer is on that tape. He believes the digital age turned the Jersey Devil into the delivery system that tells the masses that the three men were killed and Jim Seward was their killer. Whether or not that's the actual truth, it didn't really matter anymore 
to popular opinion. They got the story of the murders and they were given a conclusion by the trial. The Jersey Devil then becomes something more of a metaphysical concept in this movie. What the tape ultimately shows when it is finally restored, though, is quite disturbing and reveals the unexpected killer and the person who became the monster in the Pine Barrens. Now, I'm deciding not to give the reveal of that final moments of the movie because the movie is interesting in how it accurately and earnestly uh, this kind of recreates a true crime documentary. And it's definitely worth taking a look at if you're interested. Let's get to my three things that I like about the last broadcast. First up, uh, like I said, the, uh, the, the style of this movie is incredibly dry, but almost in a classic documentary style. The voice of David Beard as David Lee is haunting. It's deep and it's so dry that it almost has the spooky tenor to it. In a lot of ways, this reminds me of the true crime shows that have always been super popular. I think it has that same feel that makes those shows so interesting. It's recapping and showing someone's final days, hours, or minutes. It's haunting to see or to hear this story, especially after you spend time learning about these victims. This fascination for true crime reveals our humanity with the sympathy toward the victims of these crimes, as well as our morbid interest in brutality perpetrated by humans and possibly our neighbors or ourselves. Second, I think the actual story of this movie is very well crafted and executed. We know these characters very quickly and we get to know them very, very well. We hear that Stephen uh, is described as an egotist and is a little bit of a taskmaster and Stefan Avalos plays that part well to uh, back up what we're told. Locus is described as sardonic and a bit of a slacker, and Lance Weiler plays that part perfectly. James Seward plays Jim Seward, but just with a different spelling, and we're told uh, through most of this movie that he is an outsider and a weirdo and unpredictable, and he plays that very well. It, it just feels all so natural, but these non-actors back this up so well from what they write as their basic character sheet that David Lee more or less reads from this, you know, from when setting the stage for his documentary. It's all well put together. Uh, following along with the details and these characters that make up the story is so engrossing. And the conclusion isn't always super well liked by people who've seen this movie, but it doesn't really matter for me. While I have my issues with the conclusion of this movie, the first 70 minutes are so well done that you're into it so deeply that there's no way I can see that the killer revealed to be that much of a letdown that it ruins the rest of the movie. Thirdly, and this is kind of a little bit more personal, I guess, this definitely takes me back to the mid-90s. All the talk about public access cable and the early days of chat rooms and the internet reminds me of those, uh, you know, those early days of that fledgling internet. It's interesting to hear people talk about these ideas as if they're brand new, which even in 1998, when this was released, it was still very brand new. It isn't dealt with hyper-realistic or stylized ways like a lot of the other movies that centered around the cyberverse and, and the internet in the mid-90s. 
um, this is all still very accurate. Uh, this is also the early days of someone who was a loner finding a community with other loners online. You know, this is before Reddit or Yahoo groups or the anonymous platforms like 4chan. These IRC chat rooms was a uh, was a, a way for people to connect in parasocial relationships, and it was true what they said in this. It was both beautiful and chilling because you could be anonymous in these chat rooms, so people could create whatever personality they wanted to in order to lure people into conversations. You had no idea if the person you were talking to was who they said they were or if they were a serial killer or whatever. While it is a very small part of this movie, it definitely led uh, to an extra layer of creepiness. Uh, but there was a lot of internet in this movie and the idea of, of text to voice in its infancy, the early days of an internet broadcast. It's, it's all here. And I wonder if Avalos and Weiler believed back then what the internet would become today. Um, it's just fun to see those kind of quaint old days of concepts that we take for granted in the present. Well, that wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. You can catch new episodes of Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon at FilmSeizure.com. Don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to Film Seizure to get both the Film Seizure podcast and Monster Mondays at your favorite podcast providers, as well as YouTube. You can also check out my website, bmovieinema.com, to read new articles every Friday morning. Next week, Monster Mondays dives into a long-running series that has had many monsters to menace our protagonist and his companions. So come back in a week when I take a look at the 59th serial of Doctor Who, The Demons. Um, looking forward to this because it's the final serial of the eighth season of the classic era of Doctor Who that starred my favorite Doctor, the third Doctor, as played by John Pertwee. And this is an excellent, very uh, almost folk horror episode. Uh, and I'm just, I've been wanting to talk about this one for a long time. But until next week, stay spooky. <laughs>